Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today we're completing our series of shows on the George W. Bush presidency by looking at his second term. And then at the end of the show, we'll be discussing some of our thoughts on the Bush presidency overall and our thoughts on the, the series of episodes that we've done on him. Uh, before we get into some of the, the actual questions themselves, I'd like to just kick this off by having a, a bit of a reaction from yourself, Guy, a bit of a thought, uh, think back to, to your younger days. Um, <laughs> what do you actually remember of the 2004 election? For me, this is the first one that I actually remember been kind of fully aware of what was going on to American politics and to the, the election that was coming up. And I actually distinctly remember watching it on TV and watching it play out and having like political thoughts about how this would impact the Iraq war, um, which is a lovely thing to be thinking when you're a teenager alone in Scotland. Uh, Vaughn, you were actually a real American back then before you became a crazy European. Um <laughs> <laughs> you were pretty young yeah. though at the time. What what do you actually remember of the 2004 election? Yeah, um, I was 10, so not much. Not much. Uh, I, I remember John Kerry as an entity kind of happening in, in this, the public sphere. And I remember um, the allegations against John Kerry that he made up his war record. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of all I really remember about the election. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think I really have that many kind of memories about it. The ones that I remember more would be 2008 onwards. And then the first one that I was like fully a, politically aware kind of person for probably wasn't until 2016 um but it was your big uh, hillary year that year wasn't it oh yeah yeah hardcore (laughs) hillary fan over here um but i think the the 2004 i definitely remember john Kerry being a person that i was aware of and um as we've said before, like I have a lot of familial ties to Massachusetts and I really adore Massachusetts as a place. So mm-hmm. I remember John Kerry is from Massachusetts, um, but I, I don't have any kind of sophisticated thoughts or memories about it in, in any way. But also I was 10 and I was like, damn, Attack of the Clones is a good movie. <laughs> like that's, that's about where I was then. It's about where so. you were. I actually have and a very dis- still am now. <laughs> you, yes, that hasn't shifted. Uh, much like your political opinions when you were ten. Um, yep. <laughs> I actually have a memory, although I can't find any trace of it on the internet. So maybe I was just making this up, which does say quite a lot about uh, me at this time. But I have a distinct memory of there being a news report of uh, young, like liberal women, proclaiming that they would sleep with Republican men if they like changed their vote over to John Kerry. Um, oh. which yeah um, I, I can't can't find any trace of it but I'm sure I watched like a BBC news report or something where they were talking to women who were like taking this election very seriously because how outraged they were with Bush but I, I can't find any record of it so maybe it was just wishful thinking on my part um, you definitely made that up 
I, I definitely think that up. It sounds absolutely. like a very Simon thing to make up. <laughs> <laughs> very on brand. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that is my brand of politics. Um, I mean, although to be fair, if, if anyone's going to be talking about sleeping with Republican men, I think that'd be someone else in this podcast. <laughs> one. Um, Toby, <laughs> do you want to save us from this uh, conversation? Do you have any memories of the 2004 election? Yeah, I, I don't think people need incentives to sleep with Republican men. I, you know, that's, that's our first hand feedback from the <laughs> But um no, I'm I'm exactly with uh with Vaughn. I was like um oh four because oh three oh three I was in primary school. So oh four, like for a little bit of it, I was in secondary school. But yeah, I was like I didn't. I didn't know anything about American politics uh, at all. Um, I I remember watching TV, and um, I, I was keeping uh, some, you know, some observations of the war and how the war was was going, and and you know, and in some ways, I was kind of like wrapped up in uh, Bush's. Bush's speeches. I, I I I do distinctly remember the the mission accomplished stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember um, CNN. I you know I used to watch CNN a lot and uh, CNN and like people like Christine Amapol and, and um, other reporters like that. They were very bullish about about the war and uh, and you know about the possibilities of like changing the world. So yeah, I, I got I got that. I got the war stuff, but I you know I didn't. You know, I think I have very, very vague memories of, of seeing Kerry, but beyond that, I, you know, I couldn't even, I probably couldn't like find him in a lineup or something like that, you know, until maybe, maybe like 2009. So yeah, I didn't know much about the, the election itself. Uh, I, I did know that Bush had won an election. Mm-hmm. But I expected that he had won an election because it, it seemed like everyone was behind him from what I was watching. But yeah, you know, as a, it was it was oh four so mm-hmm. i was uh trying at least very desperately to cling to that invincible arsenal team at the time you know uh, there was a there was an fa cup final between um arsenal and manchester uh, united we won on penalties that was that was really important to me um and uh yeah like and then like maths class and and uh things like that and like uh, xbox yeah i mean i was <laughs> i was just a kid i don't remember that much yeah. about it. but i do remember the front-facing war stuff because we got a lot of that on te- television i do distinctly remember watching the news that night and then like cutting to george w bush and him sort of nervously looking on and uh there's sort of, you know which way will the election go and this kind of thing and i was i, I obviously didn't cared too much either way because i was less involved politically um but i do remember kind of wanting bush to win just because it seemed everyone wanted bush to lose and i was like i'd be kind of really funny if bush won because it would just annoy people and then maybe at a point later in my life having oh it's it's a shame bush won and now i've gone all the way back to like oh it's actually funny that like liberals got owned in an election which i thought was funny at the time and it's still quite funny now um, yeah, it's, a, it's a strange election in, you know, in hindsight, because that's the only election they won a majority of the vote. Yeah, absolutely. Since, I mean, basically since 1988. In 04, it probably wouldn't have seemed that way because, you know, they won a very, very tight 
election. Um, Clinton had been a two-term president, and then you won a very, very tight election uh, mm-hmm. against um, Al Gore, and then you you win the majority again. So it wouldn't have felt that way at the time, but but yeah, it's 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 uh, it's it's. But then again, you know, a lot of that had to do with the reason that I was a little bit supportive of uh, of George Bush uh, at the time and and of the of that the campaigns in and uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan you know this was sort of like um millenarian thing about bringing democracy to the whole world and, and all mm-hmm. this and um uh, yeah and and it, it, I think that would would have enchanted a lot of of people it certainly enchanted a lot of Americans I mean that's why they they won the majority that they did. A lot of people uh, felt that uh, Bush was the right person for the for the job. A lot of people just didn't want a change during a time when um, Bush was a wartime president. But yeah, I, I, I you know I think if I have an impression, it would it would just be that I felt that everything was going to according to plan. That that probably mm-hmm. my impression. Yeah, I'm just thinking about it now, Toby. It's possibly tied that. The last time Arsenal won the league was the last time the Republicans won a majority in the election. <laughs> not, not saying these two things are tied at all, but you know, uh, you know, I Trump. do, I do actually take Arsenal's circumstances and actually things that happen in my life and say, mm-hmm. I mean, they they have a, a, a real parallel to this. <laughs> change. It's depressing to say, but it's but it's true. <laughs> Yeah. Oh God! Anyway, we we could talk for hours about how sad we are about Arsenal Football Club, but we can save that for our crying about sports podcast, which will be coming later this year. Um, Vaughn, let's move swiftly on uh, or, or back to the election, and you're going to tell us a little bit about the, the 2004 election itself and where Bush was politically going into his second term. Yes, I am going to do that. Okay, so um, just to tie a lot of things that we were just saying together neatly. So the 2004 election was between the incumbent George W. Bush and the Democrat John Kerry, who's senator of Massachusetts, running with John Edwards, a senator from North Carolina. Um, Bush became the first president to ever win re-election after losing the popular vote in his first election. And he won this one very easily. Um, and at the time had the highest popular vote total of any president being 62,040,610, which has since been surpassed in every election. Uh, Bush won by 35 electoral votes with 50.7% of the popular, sweeping the South and mountain regions, Ohio, Iowa, and New Mexico. And unlike in the 2000 election, Bush won Florida by 5%, so there was no concern of discrepancy there. Um, This is the only election since 1988, as Toby just said, uh, 34 years ago, that a Republican has won the popular vote. So this win is very much a byproduct of post-9-11 highs in the Bush administration and the wars um, surrounding the response to 9-11 when Bush enjoyed an exceedingly high approval rating. Um, It's definitely and generally, again, a trend for wartime presidents to do quite well in American presidential elections, uh, as we've said before on the podcast and just prior to this. Um, So this election was a safe bet for Bush. 
though Carrie did give him a very good fight. So one aiding benefit in the wars and this election was Bush's ability to focus on Saddam Hussein as a singular tangible enemy in the wars, uh, even after Hussein was captured in December 2003. As kind of like the primary antagonist role, uh, this was helpful for the campaign in putting a face to the somewhat abstract concept of a war on terror. And in addition to this, um, the Republican campaign encouraged a, quote, ownership society, meaning Bush and Cheney encouraged individuals to invest some of their social security into the stock market and to buy their own health insurance, which we can see where that's going with the Great Recession later on. Um, the Democratic primaries were much more interesting, though, as Howard Dean, the former governor of Vermont and a physician was the apparent front runner in the summer of 2003. He was a very successful fundraiser, specifically among individual donors, um, which again we've seen out of Vermont with Bernie Sanders doing quite well in recent years. Um, and this kind of success for Dean as a fundraiser has been attributed to his early-ish days use of the internet for campaigning. Um, he emerged as a left-wing populist candidate and denounced the invasion of Iraq and also Democrats who didn't oppose the invasion strongly enough for his views. Ultimately, though, Kerry, who's a Vietnam War veteran and also a member of the Forbes family, um, outperformed in January 2004 at the Iowa caucuses and from then on became the apparent and eventual nominee. Uh, the election issues came down to responses to terrorism, primarily, and the fear that Kerry would be indecisive when it really mattered. Bush's campaign portrayed Kerry as a, quote, Massachusetts liberal who was out of touch with average Americans, which was true in one effect, that he is a Forbes and his wife was a billionaire, but not in the way that Bush meant it. Um, his wife, incidentally, Teresa Hines, is the widow of John Hines, who was a senator from Pennsylvania and heir to the Hines family, as in H.J. Hines Company, as in baked beans. Um, so that's just an interesting fact. Kerry was accused by the Swift Vets and POWs for Truth of faking his combat history, as I mentioned above, and also the medals earned by the U.S. Navy for his... Um, combat in Vietnam. And Bush was also accused of failing to fulfill his required service in the Texas Air National Guard. So both had a bit of smear campaigns coming from other organizations outside of each other's campaigns. Um, and the election was still a little dirty and an interesting fight, but Bush had very comfortable odds of winning and did, again, quite comfortably. So let's kind of move on a little bit here and um in our last bush episodes we looked at the events of 9-11 and then the wars in iraq and afghanistan and as you you touched upon they had a, a an impact on george w bush's popularity especially when uh post 9-11 and, and the impact on the 2004 election how did the wars in iraq and afghanistan play out during bush's second terms in office up to and including the time he left so in early 2004, 
There was a lull in fighting as insurgent forces reorganized and studied the approaches taken by the coalition and U.S. forces to date in Iraq. Um, insurgencies grew throughout spring and the coalition shifted focus from smaller insurgencies to Iraqi security forces, which resulted in the U.S. conducting massive bombing raids and killing hundreds of Iraqi civilians and police as Iraqi nationalist numbers grew. In November 2004, the bloodiest battle of the war uh, resumed the kind of intensive offensive at the Second Battle of Fallujah and lasted 46 days. 95 U.S. soldiers were killed and approximately 1,350 insurgents, and the U.S. totally devastated the city of Fallujah. The U.S. also used white phosphorus as an incendiary weapon in this battle, which attracted criticism from the world community. Um, another war crime committed by the U.S. was the widespread rumors of prisoner abuse at Abu Ghraib, from where gra graphic, uh, graphic pictures of U.S. soldiers abusing and taunting Iraqi prisoners emerged in April 2004. In January 2005, um, Iraqis elected the Iraqi transitional government in order to draft a permanent constitution and fighting led up between February and April that year. On April 2nd, 2005, the Battle of Abu Ghraib took place in which um, Iraqi insurgents coordinated a massive scale attack on the U.S. prison there. Through May, Suicide bombers targeted many Shia gatherings of civilians and brought about one of the deadliest months of the war in which approximately 700 Iraqi civilians died and 79 U.S. soldiers. In October, the Iraqi constitution was ratified and in December, the Iraqi National Assembly was elected with cooperation from Sunnis, Kurds, and Shia peoples. In total in 2005, there was a recorded 34,131 insurgent attacks. In February 2006, the Al-Asqari Mosque was bombed presumably by Al-Qaeda in a horrific and tragic sectarian attack uh, as part of the civil war going on in, in Iraq. And in another war crime by the US on March 12, 2006, five U.S. Army soldiers raped a 14-year-old girl and killed her, her parents, and her six-year-old sister. All five were convicted of some level of criminal activity, um, four for rape and murder, and the fifth for lesser crimes. In May, the government of Iraq elected the previous, uh, who were elected the previous December, took office and succeeded in many of their efforts of establishing a more permanent form of government. In December 2006, the Iraq Study Group report was released uh, within the US by a bipartisan commission and found that, quote, US forces seem to be caught in a mission that has no foreseeable end, end quote, and that, quote, the situation in Iraq is grave and deteriorating, end quote. So we can see that there is a a marked kind of decrease in support by 2006 in the Iraq war. This report offered recommendations of how to proceed, including diplomatic measures with Iran and Syria, 
and intensifying the training of Iraqi troops. The Pentagon also reported in December that insurgent attacks were averaging 960 per week. Military prosecutors also charged eight U.S. Marines with the murders of 24 Iraqi civilians committed in Haditha in November the previous year. On December 30th, 2006, Saddam Hussein was hanged after being found guilty of crimes against humanity. On January 20th, 2007, two weeks later, Bush proposed 21,500 more troops for Iraq, a job program for Iraqis, more reconstruction proposals for their government, and requested $1.2 billion for these programs. In his State of the Union address at the end of the month, Bush announced, quote, deploying reinforcements of more than 20,000 additional soldiers and Marines to Iraq, end quote. On May 10th, 2007, 144 Iraqi parliamentarians signed a legislative petition calling for the U.S. to produce a timetable for their withdrawal. In June, the Iraqi parliament also voted to require the Iraqi government to consult with parliament before requesting additional extensions of the UN Security Council mandate for coalition operations in Iraq. The coalition began to break apart in 2007 as UK Prime Minister Tony Blair announced Operation Sinbad, which would withdraw British troops from Iraq and Danish Prime Minister Anders Fogh Rasmussen announced the withdrawal of 441 Danish troops from Iraq leaving only nine to man observational helicopters. In the fall of 2007, the US government announced a withdrawal of troops from Iraq to take place over the next year and bring numbers back down to before the early 2007 surge of sending more troops. Fighting diminished through March, 2008, though many in the US military felt there was still a need to be present as the civil war in Iraq continued. And by December 2008, the U.S.-Iraq Status of Forces Agreement was approved, establishing that U.S. combat forces would withdraw from Iraqi cities by June 30th, 2009, and that all U.S. forces would be completely out of Iraq by December 31st, 2011. Simultaneously to all of this, the U.S. was also engaged in Afghanistan. In January 2004, Afghanistan drafted a constitution and elected President Karzai in October. Later in the month, Osama bin Laden surfaced in videos in which he took responsibility for the 9-11 attacks. Um, that was only a matter of weeks before the U.S. election when Bush was re-elected in November 2004. In May 2005, Bush and Karzai reaffirmed their joint declaration to remaining strategic partners in the war on extremism. And in September, Afghanistan held another successful democratic election for their parliamentary houses and local councils. By July 2006, there was a dramatic increase in violence um, in Afghanistan as suicide attacks quintupled from 27 in 2005 to 139 in 2006, and remotely detonated bombings doubled to 1,677. Insurgencies thrived as they were in Iraq in the same period. And by the end of 2006, cracks in the coalition that were starting to shake the events in the Iraq war were also challenging the fighting in Afghanistan. 
NATO leaders called for an end to the fighting by 2008, and the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, criticized NATO in late 2007 for not sending more troops earlier. Again, in Afghanistan, U.S. war crimes against civilians were surfacing, including the errant fire from a U.S. gunship that killed dozens of citizens in the Shindand district of the Herat province in August 2008 drawing criticism from President Karzai and bolstering the kind of Taliban claims that the coalition forces were unable to protect the Afghan population. By February 2009, Obama was elected in the U.S. and he recommitted to the fight in Afghanistan. That was a very, very quick kind of rundown of the events of both of those wars. And there is so much more and so many more atrocities that should rightfully be covered within them. Um, but the Absolutely. the fighting was there were highs and lows of it, um, or, or rather increases and decreases of it um, throughout the rest of Bush's administration. And as we know, the Afghanistan war didn't finish until last year. Yeah, just listening. To, first of all, thank you for that. Um, considering how concise you had to be, that was quite thorough. Um, Thank you. Awful listening to that. You know, I'm just yeah. thinking about the decisions that have been made to to move American soldiers into that part of the world and the this, this idea that just the wars lasted for so long and the atrocities continued. And we, we've talked a lot on this podcast before about there basically every president um could be um considered guilty of, of war crimes one way or another and um, obviously, not every single thing that happens in a war is specifically down to a president. But when when you just hear about some of the things that, that have happened and the, the atrocities that that region has had to endure, it just it does strike home how dreadful uh, that period um, was and how devastating it was to millions and millions of people, and how we shouldn't let people off because you know. George W. Bush is now friends with Michelle Obama or whatever, you know, it's, yeah, yeah it's just so disheartening as a human being to, to hear those types of things. Well, we're going to move on to something which is, um, well, equally as fun, let's put it that way, um, domestic policy, and we're sort of shifting over to um, another defining legacy of the Bush administration, which was the increase in global surveillance, um, particularly by the NSA, um, and the kind of arguments um, over privacy and personal liberty versus safety. Um, Toby, what was the reaction by the public, uh, the media and the Democrats to the NSA's domestic spying program during this time? Well, I think I, I want to expand this out a little mm -hmm. bit more to uh, Bush's um, domestic circumstances ending really with the with the NSA because I think it's kind of the the kind of the tip of the spear but yeah go for it as opposed to the things that were happening on a foreign policy level Bush was kicking about quite well I think probably until the end of um, 2005 in October so Bush he had tried to um, think about having Justice Scalia as the new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, but they ended up picking John Roberts. And uh, I think 
um, conservatives were quite happy with that, but he wanted to put in a lady called uh, Harriet Myers on the Supreme Court, but a lot of conservatives wrote to Bush uh, at the time. Bill Kristol, the, the editor of the Weekly Standard, said he was disappointed, depressed, and demoralized by the nomination. Charles Krauthammer observed that if Harriet Myers was not crony of the president of the United States, her nomination to the Supreme Court would be a joke, as it would have occurred to no one else to nominate her. Uh, so the, they really weren't buying the president's argument for having Harriet Myers on the court at the time. And then when Har Harriet Myers was making calls uh, to Republican senators, her, her support really crumbled. Uh, the cipher blow came on October 19th when Republican Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and, and normally supported the president, uh, to return to the traditional questionnaire she had filled out for the committee because her responses were, he deemed, inadequate. And uh, I think one of the problems with her was that she didn't actually have a judicial background, although, as many people have noted, many Supreme Court justices don't have a judicial background. Uh, backgrounds and haven't had this background within history she was just not seen as uh, as appointable by by conservatives at the time which is really one of the first times that conservatives had moved against bush because uh, they had actually tried their best to support his uh, no child left behind policies and policies that were more a little bit more uh centrist so instead they picked um alito you know uh and Alisa had been on the appellate bench since 1990 and had established a record of digital decisions. They conservative, delighted conservatives. And but again, this was this was sort of the first shakings of Bush, you know, becoming a little bit unstuck in his, his second term. Moving into the NSA stuff, just before the NSA stuff, is also like this is the era of the Patriot Act and the increased surveillance. But there was a but there's a connecting tissue from the, the foreign policy uh, perspective and the domestic policy, which is, I think, think is, is the torture aspect. Uh, jo John McCain had worked quite hard to pass through an anti-torture bill through both houses of Congress at the time against the will of the Bush administration. So in Philadelphia on December the 12th, Bush uh, was speaking World Affairs Council describing the progress he'd made on the Iraq war, but at the same time, the scholars at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, for the first time, Bush publicly accepted blame for his past mistakes. At the same time, Bush was speaking to scholars. The, the McCain anti-torture amendment was working its way through the House of Representatives. It was time to reconcile the House and Senate versions of defense appropriations bill and the House was moving to appoint its negotiators to the Congress Committee. Procedurally, the Democrats had supported McCain. They supported the anti-torture uh, bill. The House had voted 308 to 122 to accept McCain's amendment. 107 Republicans joined 200 Democrats and one independent to put the measure across. Uh, Cheney, at the time, urged Bush to continue fighting against uh, this amendment. On December 16th, the day after Bush received McCain and the warrant at the White House, the New York Times published its own sweeping expose of the warrantless surveillance program that the National Security Agency had been conducting. 
Purient to Presidential Order. And the piece was written by James Risen, who, uh, like Dana Priest, would go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for their articles. Uh, the, the existence of the program was so secret that few in the administration were aware of it. Uh, Risen had learned of the NSA's activities in late 2004 and written about them, but, he, but in the urging of the White House and the Times at the time, he had not published his stories. But by the late 2005, the situation had changed. Risen was about to write a book about the, the program. Uh, the Times editors were increasingly concerned about the legality of NSA's activities, given the president's stance on interrogation retention. As, at, as the Times passed, said Bill Keller, the Times senior editor, they demonstrated that they were entitled somewhat uh, less benefit the doubt. In early December, the Times editor advised the White House that they were planning to run the article and were invited to the White House where they were met by Stephen Headley, Condoleezza Rice, and the director of the CIA. Once again, the, the, the White House made the case that the NSA's activities were essential and that if the Times published the article, they would share the blame for the next attack. The Times editors were not convinced. Once the Times editors learned the administration might seek an injunction, Bush was, uh, was trying to seek an injunction against the Times at the time. Rather than chance a last minute intervention, the story was posted on the Times website the night before its publication in the print version of the paper. The Times editors were worried that once they notified the White House they'd be running the story, a last minute injunction would be pushed through. The, the Times had obviously promised to give the White House notice of, of the story about the, the NSA uh, spying and then did just before they they published it on on their on their websites but again this is this uh, this was sh shows you that the the Bush administration was was not only in terms of the things that were happening in Abu Ghraib but also um pushing against anti anti torture laws actually the reaction to McCain's anti torture law and then to a su supreme court vote that that said that um people who were in being interrogated by the USA in other countries were subject to the Geneva Convention they could not be tortured could not be could not they could not use um, more invidious or invasive techniques on them the, the Bush administration tried to push through a piece of legislation in the House and and the, and the Senate to to push against that they the 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 piece of legislation said said that um that america was allowed to create its own courts outside of the united states that would give the american soldiers and um and um, members of the cia the ability to rendition and um perform invasive measures on 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 criminals at the, or, or people they perceived to be criminals at the time the bush administration is obviously pursuing uh significant surveillance and spying regime and tactics uh, within the united states as well at, at the time and uh, so yeah it just shows you that um it, it wasn't just it just shows you that the the domestic and the foreign are really linked in this in this time. Not only is there a aggressive war being fought 
in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's aggressive tactics being used on people that the CIA and the US military had taken in. And then there's a, a, a deep surveillance network that's being performed on American citizens. So the the so Bush was going out of his way to uh, retract many of the rights that uh, Americans had uh, not only respected but seemed to think that were basic parts of the of the Constitution at at, at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, I, I remember this period fairly well considering i was relatively young and um i I do remember the conversations around uh, like privacy versus safety and that was kind of one of the first times for myself as a young person trying to marry up different ideas of kind of being scared of potential terrorist attacks while at the same time not wanting to give over personal freedoms and it wasn't in media a lot and even things like in the dark night um, towards the end of the film where Batman hands over his um, piece of technology that can basically spy on people in order to hunt down uh, the Joker. And he hands that off to Morgan Freeman and Morgan Freeman's kind of scared by this power of this technology. And he says, you know, as long as this is here, I, I won't be working here kind of thing. And so even in like popular, like big, you know, hundred million dollar popular culture um, items like the dark night, there was this kind of conversation around, um, you know, whether or not um, larger agencies or, or people in power were, were spying on everyday citizens and especially as, as technology was going to advance, you know, how far that was going to go with data mining and, and, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's really a civil liberties uh, question. Mm-hmm. So you have, you really have the expansion of the executive branch, but, you know, like not like in the past where the expansion of the executive branch was for the purpose of increasing fiscal stimulus or creating, you know, these kinds of administrative bureaucracies. You know, you even had things like uh, during the Bush administration, revelations about the FBI's use of expanded powers to secretly conduct searches without warrants, seize banking and internet records, and and uh, other other things like that. The, you know, and Bush was was at this time. I think it it become uh, more of a public story when uh, Obama was doing it, but mm. Obama was putting through a lot of executive orders on a lot of different things. Bush was doing a lot of uh, executive signing statements. Uh, so what, once the anti-torture law had been pushed through, uh, John McCain put Bush signing executive signing statements that would uh, allow him to construe particular laws to do with uh, torture uh, himself. So again, it's like, there, there, there was a real expansion of the executive branch for the purpose of of spying and um, and surveillance at, at this time, and 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 I, oh, it's also why there was I think maybe a a joined left and right wing pushback for civil, mm-hmm. civil liberties at this time that as you can see in the in media like the with the Batman. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, moving this forward a little bit, and it's it is quite amazing just how many sort of big topics there are to cover um, with George Bush in, in general, and even even just specifically in the second term. Um, probably one of the defining uh, moments of his presidency uh, was yet another crisis that occurred, um, uh, which was the Hurricane Katrina um, crisis. Um, 
late August 2005, uh, southern states were hit with hurricane that ended up killing over 1,800 people, destroying 300,000 homes, leaving 3 million people without electricity and causing $125 billion worth of damage. Uh, the Bush administration was widely criticized for their handling of Katrina, especially their response to it. Toby, can you tell us a little bit about how Hurricane Katrina and, and the failed response by the Bush administration to that emergency impacted Bush's time in office and his popularity and uh, how that came out in the media as well? Well, I think Bush was focusing on the Iraq war. I think a lot of this at the time is, is sculpted and by Bush's focus on the Iraq war. So actually when he was told about the imminent hurricane and, and the possibility of destruction, they, you know, the Bush White House were like, oh, just another one. You know, they, they were, they just saw it as another thing among the many things that they had to deal with. So when Bush um, talked about Hurricane Katrina in a press conference, with uh, Mark Wills, he, he he sort of mentioned it in passing, but he wasn't so focused on it because he was focused on the Iraq war. So he seemed disconnected from reality. Uh, the, the, the Bush was not the only member of the administration dis- disconnected. Michael Chertoff, the cabinet officer responsible for Homeland Security was in Atlanta, at the center for disease control, listening to uh, lectures about avian flu. So, and again, both Bush and Michael Chertoff, when they were talked to about this by FEMA officials on the scene, they seemed disconnected. They, they didn't really, they didn't know what was going to happen and they didn't really perceive it as the major threat that it was going to emerge to be at the at the time and then it wasn't until the level of this destruction started to happen so once it happened Carl Rove had the idea that Bush uh, should fly over New Orleans in order to show support to the people at the time but other people thought that he was going to seem very disconnected and it was a, it was a bad move, but, but Carl Rove pushed it and it eventually happened. Uh, Jay-Z famously, I think on his album, King and King and come uh, on the song beach chair talked about how, you know, Bush flew over uh, black people and, and felt disconnected and, and so, yeah, this this is what was one of the major scenes of disconnection by Bush. So, uh, Bush uh, spent Wednesday morning at the ranch and then boarded the Air Force One shortly after lunch to return to Washington. He flew over New Orleans along the coast of Mississippi and Alabama. Carl Rove said it would demonstrate the president's concern. McLean and the White House counselor Dan Barlett strongly disagreed. He'll look out of touch and detached. If he goes, he needs to be on the ground visiting with those affected and seeing the damage. Uh, McLean and, uh, was right, Rove was wrong. And then what happened led to 
the, the media feeling the bush was uh, disconnected. The destruction that happened was staggering. Bush described it as, as devastating. New Orleans was awash with flood water. Bush could see desperate people still wanting uh, to be saved, people waiting on a rooftop to be rescued. The hurricane had come through two days earlier and waters from Lake Pontchartrain still swirled through the city. The levee system had been breached in 53 places and 80% of New Orleans was flooded. The damage along the Mississippi coast was even greater, battered by a 26-foot storm surge. Beachfront neighborhoods had been completely leveled 90% of the structures within half a mile of the coastline was totally destroyed. Looking at it, Bush said it's totally wiped out. The mood on the plane was somber. Everyone was struck by how devastating the, the storm ha had been. Uh, Bush had another photo op nightmare. Carl Rove uh, invited photographers rising in the rear of the plane full forward to take pictures of Bush surveying the damage. Rove intended it as a photo op depicting the president's compassion. It backfired badly. Television coverage that evening was brutal. Rather than depicting Bush's compassion, the photos of the president gazing out of the window of Air Force One showed Bush, the tourist, detached, powerless, and marveling at the damage. The flyover was bad enough, but to have photos of the president merely watching the scene below was disastrous. Bush arrived at the White House shortly. The New York Times said nothing about the president's demeanor yesterday, which seemed casual to the point of carelessness, suggested that he understood the depth of the current crisis. And then, according to the Times, once Bush uh, reached the podium, he gave one of his worst speeches. And at the time, Bush, the Bush administration really denied the responsibility of the administration and, and focused a lot on state and local government. Bush, uh, he was in denial. The administration, is, he didn't see the administration as responsible. As one of the White House aides put it, throughout the first week, we focused on how poorly prepared and overwhelmed state and local officials had been. But we largely ignored the fact the federal government was vital backup, the fail-safe mechanism supposed to compensate for breakdowns at lower levels. Mike Brown, director of FEMA, who was in Louisiana, had repeatedly contacted both his superior, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and the White House to report the catastrophe unfolding in New Orleans and to ask for help, but he had largely been ignored. As Brown later told Congress, the problem was that the hurricane was a natural disaster rather than a terrorist attack. So again, it's just framing the Bush being much more concerned with, with, with terrorism than with the disaster. And Brown said, if there had been a report that said, yes, we've confirmed that a terrorist had blown up the 17th Street Canal levee, then everyone would have jumped all over that and been trying to do everything they could. But because this was a natural disaster, it became a stepchild within the Department of Homeland Security. On Friday, September 2nd, Bush returned to the Gulf Coast to inspect the damage close up. It was just another public relations disaster landing in Mobile, Alabama. He seemed out of touch. Speaking to reporters at the Mobile Regional Airport, a buoyant Bush gave another congratulatory pep talk. He said, the good news is, and it is hard for some to see it now, that out of this chaos is going to come a fantastic Gulf Coast, like it was before. Out of the rubble, 
of Trent Lott's house. He's lost his entire house. There's going to be a fantastic house. And I'm going to look forward to sitting it on the porch. People interpreted this as a completely callous remark that illustrated Bush's lack of compassion, surrounded by death and devastation. The, the president lamented the misfortune of a millionaire senator who had lost his vacation home for poor people struggling to survive, many of whom had lost their homes and could scarcely afford to rebuild. It was a mo monumental error. Uh, Bush second Howler came a few minutes later after congratulating everyone for the work they were doing. Bush turned to Michael Brown. Again, I want to thank you all for, and Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The FEMA director was working 24 hours. They're working 24 hours a day. Clearly, Bush did not recognize how bad things were on the Gulf Coast or how much Brown was in over his head. As Peter Barker of the New York Times has noted, Bush cemented an impression of disconnected with a gaffe that would harden into one of the worst moments of his presidency. And again, at the time, Bush was trying to take control of the situation from local officials. Uh, he dispatched a memorandum to Louisiana Governor Blanco outlining a plan to which the governor would request the federal government to take charge of the situation. But Blanco was really pushing back against this. Uh, confronted with the ref governor's refusal to relinquish control, Bush threw in the tower. Rather than invoke the Insurrection Act, the president would send federal troops to New Orleans without law enforcement powers. As he claimed he was anxious about the situation. If they, the troops, got caught in a crossfire, it would be my fault. But I decided that sending troops with diminished authority was better than not sending them at all. Again, when faced with a crisis, Bush is encroaching on state and local government powers. He's not he's not doing enough in the beginning with FEMA officials to really set up and protect New Orleans and to protect the people and to and to do re relocation work. And be and because of that, he seen he seems disconnected. And then when he tries to intervene, it's seen as a further encroachment because he's encroaching on the level with the NSA. He's encroaching with increased uh, redemption. Uh, so the torture laws and um, requisition laws and it and so he again he, he seems to be he's either a dictator in, in one sense or he's, he's completely disconnected and he's focusing on on iraq just to summarize in terms of the the devastation 836 pe people died in hurricane katrina and subsequent flood, flooding 1500 in louisiana uh 200 and 38 in Mississippi and 14 in Florida. Property damage exceeded 108 billion, 300,000 homes were destroyed and 1.7 million people temporarily displaced, the largest diaspora in American history. The devastated area exceeded the size of Great Britain and the environmental effects were profound. Wildfire was decimated no, wildlife was decimated and over a million acres of forest land destroyed. Ultimately, Bush would make 17 trips to the Gulf Coast, Laura 24, but politically, they could never recover. In terms of popularity, how it affected popularity, Hurricane Katrina was a decisive turning point in Bush's presidency. He had won re-election, re uh, as Vaughn has said, obviously with the most votes ever, 
however, by Hurricane Katrina, his popularity had fallen to 38.3% and never recovered. Just thank you for that, Toby. Just listening to you speak there. Um, uh, I thought it was interesting what you said about people bringing up the comparison between how they would have, how the Bush administration would have reacted if there's been a, a terrorist attack rather than if this had been, um, you know, a force of nature, you know, something that like a, like a hurricane where there's no enemy to blame as, as it were. Um, it's such stark contrast between the imagery of um, 9-11 and, you know, people on the ground and even Giuliani on the ground and becoming, you know, America's mayor and all this kind of stuff with the contrast of the imagery of George W. Bush up in the plane, kind of looking down and being above it all and just how disastrous that was for him. Um, just even just the imagery alone, let alone maybe the actual... Um, reaction as far as aid and, and competence of, of you know sorting things out but even just on the sort of imagery of politics you know the the idea of flying above it all and looking down from your comfy seat at this devastation just you could almost teach that in a class couldn't you about how how not to do um presidency um when a natural disaster strikes no yeah abso- absolutely so you know like if I was just to go back to when the the storm was gathering, Bush when Bush was informed that his his, his ranch, he just he seemed completely disconnected. It was at, at the time he was on vacation, Cheney was on vacation, and their concerns at the time were about the, the Iraq War. And Bush deferred, accepted state and local authorities were the first responders and could uh, handle the hurricane. Instead of thinking about Katrina, Bush remained focused on Iraq. So again, it's, 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 it, it, there, there are practical considerations. Bush was very much focused on, on Iraq. He was very much disconnected. But then, as you've described, is the real public relations failure. The public relations failure in terms of the plane, which is a disaster, it's um, been satirized and reflected upon even in, in, in rap songs. His failures to really take the situation seriously in, in his speeches, his, his, his disconnection from, from the events itself, it, it, all, it all comes together to, to really make that Kanye remark, probably <laughs> there's a single political remark he's ever made that, that had some real substance, or at least that a lot of people could agree with was that that Bush uh, doesn't care about black people, and 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 Bush has written about that in his biography and said that that was the worst moment of his presidency. And for for Kanye to, to say that or on television, you could see Kanye in that moment shivering. You know, scared, mm-hmm. generally scared to say what he, he said and, and 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 he said it and and it it definitely got to Bush because Bush re- reflected on it. But again, it's it's it Bush was a wartime president. I mean, you know, we're we're gonna go into 
many things on this podcast and, and criticize him, but that, that was his focus. And he really left a lot of other things on the, on the wayside, this natural disaster being probably the most visceral example, but also, you know, the rights of American people as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, even just taking the, those famous words by Kanye, you know, Bush doesn't care about black people. And then just thinking about how Kanye's relationship to a Republican president sort of changes and evolves and remixes as we get to Trump is quite a, quite an astonishing kind of turnaround. And, um, you know, when we saw Kanye in, in the White House and what, what happened there, it's, you know, it just shows you how sort of both how different the political animal of Bush compared to Trump is, but also then obviously the, the evolution of, of Kanye as a political figure as well. It's, it's fascinating. No, absolutely. I, I guess if Kanye had been allowed to lunch with Bush in, in Connecticut or, you know, the white house before, if, if they ran the same circles, he probably wouldn't have said what he said. So I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, um, talk of sort of Bush's disasters um, leads us on to the 2006 midterms. So Vaughn, how did uh, Katrina and the wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Bush's general popularity, how, how did that impact the 2006 midterm elections? Um, pretty badly for Republicans. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of leading the question there, wasn't it? Put it lightly. So in the Senate, Democrats won a net of six seats in the midterms and 31 in the House, uh, winning both the House and the Senate. And this was the first time since 1994 when one party had controlled both houses of Congress. Nancy Pelosi also became the first female Speaker of the House um, as a result of the 2006 midterms. In gubernatorial elections, Democrats won a net of six seats there as well. Republicans failed to win any seat previously held by a Democrat, and it was the first time since 1994 as well that a party did not lose a single incumbent gubernatorial or congressional seat. Um, Bush's administration, as we're saying and mounting up to, it was getting pretty dire on domestic and foreign issues. The devastating Katrina response, um, the NSA scandals, the war in Iraq, really going nowhere except getting bloodier and with more and more revelations of atrocities committed by American troops. And then the, the start of the housing bubble bursting, Bush's legislative defeats on social security privatization and immigration reform, the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, and separately Congress's very unpopular involvement in the Terry Schiavo case, in which the government's input and mishandling led to a seven-year delay in the removal of her feeding tube, as well as a number of scandals with individual Republican politicians were just disastrous for Republicans in the midterms. Um, and it was a very clear and clean sweep for Democrats. Some of those scandals um, <clears throat> seem almost a bit of, of a bygone era now. Mark Foley, a Republican congressman from Florida, was exposed for sending and soliciting sexual emails and instant messages from teenage boys who had formerly served as congressional pages. 
and Jack Abramoff, a Republican lobbyist from New Jersey, was the subject of several investigations and indictments and scandals, including a fraud case in which he was indicted by the federal grand jury in Florida surrounding Sun Cruise Casinos, another indictment by the Guam Superior Courts, and one by the Senate Indian Affairs Committee for conspiring to con $85 million in payments to native casinos. Um, Abramoff was portrayed in two scandal films, uh, incidentally played by Kevin Spacey in one of them in 2010. By August 2006, Bush's approval rating was down to 37%, with a disapproval rating of 57.3%. In mid-September, a poll indicated that 48% of Americans believed the war in Iraq made the U.S. less safe, and 61% believed the U.S. was not better off because of Bush's policies. Um, so to answer your question, it affected the midterms negatively and a lot. Um, but just, just out of interest, one last thing. A poll of 1,004 adults conducted at the close of 2006 found that President Bush was both the, quote, top villain and the, quote, top hero of the year. And the hero poll, the results went like this. So Bush was the top hero at 13%. And then soldiers and troops in Iraq were at 6%. Those seem normal enough, right? Jesus Christ was at 3%. Barack Obama was at 3% and Oprah Winfrey was at 3% for top hero of the year in 2006. So that's, that's how the midterms went. Wow. America's a very normal place. Isn't it? And just, yes. just to add, add to that, as everyone has said, Bush was very much out of step with where Americans were and not just yeah. in terms of his policies, because Bush was super, super focused on Iraq. Actually, just before the midterms, he had a conversation with Mitch McConnell and McConnell said, well, you know, the midterms are going to be really bad for us. And Bush was like, well, what do you think I should do? And McConnell said, how about you let some troops come back from Iraq? And Bush said, he just, he, I couldn't do, I can't do it. He, and it's that really that was the defining thing of this of this, of this period yeah in in speeches and this is in fact the last time that bush would campaign for candidates you know like he, he didn't really campaign in, in 2008 because he was so so unpopular but he, in his speeches bush painted the democrats as weak in the war on terror the party of cut and run uh, obviously de determined to to raise taxes but weak on national security, weak on safety, weak on democracy. And, and Bush was framing the midterms in the way he framed 2004. But it wasn't, as Vaughan has said, this wasn't really working anymore because the war was no longer popular with, the, with Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we're kind of, coming towards the end of the presidency now in, in, in this episode. Um, although it wouldn't be the George W. Bush presidency if there wasn't one last uh, crisis to deal with. Um, Vaughn, you kind of mentioned it there, that the start of the housing market collapse um, was already sort of starting to take place. And as we talked with 
um, Felix Salmon on a previous episode when we were talking about the big short, um, we had the housing market collapse really sort of take place in 2008 and uh, we had the Great Depression happen um, as a result. Um, Toby, can you tell us a little bit more about the economic depression that hit America after the housing market collapse of 2008? And um, if, if that can have any impact on George Bush politically and Republicans kind of in, in general with how they, they sort of dealt with the fallout of that. Well, the, the Bush administration after 2001, when there was a recession, the Bush administration did see a thriving economy, an economy that appeared to be th- thriving. You know, although the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan Plus, you would have uh, tax cuts that it caused the federal deficit to soar from a surplus to a shortfall. The personal incomes were growing uh, from 8.5 trillion to 11.3 trillion and increased to 33% during the period. Unemployment stood at 4.6%. New home construction exceeded 2 million units annually. And mortgage foreclosures stood at a record low of less than 1%. In 2005, 30 mortgage rates averaged 5.9%. Buyers and people of modest incomes and people with poor credit ratings, as is shown in movies like The Big Short, were able to purchase houses. Uh, Bush, as the one has said, is, was concerned about creating a, an ownership society that they were focused on, on on an ownership society and we were very much supportive of policies that gave people access to to cheap credit the bush administration and the federal reserve were largely unaware of the fragility of the housing markets alan greenspan chairman of the federal reserve speaking to the economic club of new york on may the 20th 2005 denied that there was a housing bubble He said there might be a few local bubbles. He called it froth, but they did not pose a national problem. Even if there are declines in prices, said Greenspan, the significant run-up to date has so increased equity in homes that only those who have purchased very recently are going to have problems. Ben Bernanke, who was the head of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, was equally dismissive. After briefing Bush on the economy at the ranch in Crawford on August the 9th, 2005, Bernanke met with the White House press corps, asked about by a reporter whether there was a housing bubble. Bernanke replied, we talked some about housing. There's a lot of good news about housing. The rate of home ownership is at a record level. Affordability is still pretty good. The issue of the housing bubble is one that people have whether there is a housing bubble is one that people have raised. Housing prices have certainly come up quite a bit, but I think it's important to point out that housing prices are being supported in a very large part by very strong fundamentals. We have a strong economy. We have lots of jobs, employment, high incomes, very low mortgage rates, growing population and a shortage of land and, ha- and housing in many areas. And those supply and demand factors are a big reason for why housing prices have risen as much as they have. Bush. In keeping with Greenspan and Bernanke, was equally dismissive about the housing bubble. Bush, when asked about the cost of housing, he said, "Economy should cycle. If houses get too expensive, people will stop buying them. Let the market function properly. 
your kind of question has been asked throughout the history of home building. These things cycle. That's just the way it works. Then Greenspan stepped down as the chairman of Federal Reserve. Henry Paulson came into the administration and Bernanke uh, stepped, stepped up in, in, the, in terms of economic advisors. Then you start getting the first smattering of a crisis. The housing market crested in 2005 and started to become choppy in 2006. Prices remained high, averaging over 250,000 nationally, but demand was slackening. Houses start hitting a peak of 192,000 in August 2005, but a year later were down to 146,000. And by December 2006, 112,000. And the backlog of unsold houses increased by 20%. More ominously, mortgage foreclosures were mushrooming. In the first quarter of 2005, only 188,000 homes were in foreclosure proceedings. By the last quarter of 2006, the number had risen to 346,000, an increase of 84%. In Detroit, one of every 21 houses faced foreclosure. In Atlanta, one of every 23. And in Dallas, one of every 26. Because prices remained high, the weakness of the housing sector was not generally recognized. But the subprime market, which had expanded from 5% of the mortgage market in 1994 to 20% in 2006, an estimated $2 was in major, major turmoil. So... Henry Paulson speaking in New York on April 20th, 2007 said house prices were bottoming out and the subprime problem was unlikely to spread. Bernanke said, we believe the effects of troubles in the subprime sector on the border of the housing market will likely be limited. But then house prices continued to shrink. In March of 2007, sales were down 13% from the previous year and prices were down 6%. Holders of some prime mortgages were desperate. Ten days later, Countrywide Financial Corporation, the nation's largest across-the-board mortgage firm, narrowly escaped bankruptcy. Bush, now seeing that there was a crisis, met with his economic advisors. They, at this time, didn't really believe that the subprime mortgage problem was going to lead to something bigger, but they were they were certainly aware of a potential crisis. On August the 9th, 2007, the day after Bush had met with his advisors and then spoken to the press, PNP Paribus, France's largest bank, announced that it was halting withdrawals from three of its investment funds because of exposure to the U.S. subprime mortgage market. As the housing market continued to decline and as more mortgages were foreclosed, the Democrats in Congress stepped up their criticism of the administration on the economy. Bush responded on August the 31st by announcing a limited plan to assist homeowners facing foreclosure. He claimed that the recent disturbances in the subprime mortgage industry are modest. But if you are a family, if you are a family and are having trouble making the monthly payments, this problem doesn't seem modest to you, he claimed at the time. By the end of 2007, the housing market was in a nosedive. The median price had fallen to 214,000. The new construction was down 25% from its peak, the second largest dec decline on record 
perhaps more revealing, over 2.2 million foreclosures, default notices, auction sale notices, and bank repossessions had been filed on a million residential properties, an increase of 75% over 2006. There was now a problem with particular entities and institutions. So initially, you have a problem with Bear Stearns potentially going bankrupt. Bush was initially reluctant to assist Bear Stearns. He claimed that in a free market economy, firms that fail should go out of business. Bush believed that if the government stepped in, it would set a precedent. Paulson and Bernanke at the Federal Reserve initially agree with Bush that Bear Stearns should be allowed to fail, but a quick inspection of Bear Stearns' books by the federal officials in New York convinced them otherwise. Bear Stearns was far too interconnected, as Paulson put it. Bear had hundreds, maybe thousands of counterparties, firms that lent it money or with it traded stocks, bonds, mortgages, and other securities. Throughout the spring of 2008, the housing market continued to decline. Prices were down 21% from their highs to, from two years ago. A much more serious problem pertained to two real estate giants that operated under the government sponsorship. This was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. As the nation's largest mortgage lender, funding roughly two-thirds of home loans in America, they suffered enormous losses and many believed they were on the verge of going under. To meet the emergency, Bush asked Congress to, to authorize and to invest federal funds in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, providing them with sufficient liquidity to meet the crisis. That was what Paulson recommended and Bush agreed. We've got to get this done, said the president. The, the Democrats were supportive and even raised the debt ceiling to accommodate the president's request. On July 23, 2008, the Housing and Economic Recovery Act passed the House of 272 to 152, and three days later cleared the Senate 72 to 13. Under the legislation, the federal government was giving a free hand to support Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The Secretary of Treasury was given oversight responsibilities, and the two firms would remain private corporations. Then you have a problem with Lehman Brothers, Lehman Brothers failure, but Paulson and Bernanke declined to support Lehman Brothers without the government support. And Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy earlier Monday. Bush followed Paulson's lead throughout the Lehman crisis. And so the question arises, why Paulson decided to not support Lehman Brothers. Whatever was the reason, the failure to rescue Lehman Brothers launched the financial meltdown that followed. The, there was, it was the most extreme flight of, of capital ever experienced. Financial stocks were hit even harder. Hedge funds withdrew money from investment banks and credit basically dried up completely. The, and then you had... Uh, AIG, an American insurance giant, which had become heavily involved in insuring the mortgage-backed securities with the housing market in free fall also facing a crisis itself. So now you have a full crisis. The financial markets continue their nosedive. The, the bailout of AIG had little effect. The following day, the Giles Jones fell to 4.1%, its lowest cl close in three years, and capital markets had dried up. Banks stopped lending to each other, and there was a run on money markets as investors moved their money into sh short-term treasury bills. 
it was becoming clear that the markets were going into apoplectic shock and we needed to do something about it, claimed Bernanke. The Fed would no longer cope with crisis loan. The government needed to step up with massive assistance. On September 19th, the Treasury announced that from the day forward, all money market mutual funds would be insured in their entirety. The SEC banned short selling of financial stocks. The Fed added liquidity to the commercial paper market. The legislation allowed the government to buy toxic mortgage assets. Just before the market opened, Paulson issued a statement outlining a trouble asset relief program, TARP, which would remove illiquidity assets that were weighing down any financial institutions throughout the economy. This would require congressional approval. Paulson's announcement triggered a spontaneous rally on Wall Street, and the Dow Jones uh, finally rose a, a little bit. On, on Capitol Hill, despite the efforts of congressional leadership, the TARP ran into immediate difficulty, and uh, on the campaign trail, the TARP was uh, a, a difficult piece of legislation for John McCain to support and was a difficult piece of legislation for, for many re Republicans. Bush defended it by saying that although he was a free marketeer and under normal circumstances, he would not support a piece of legislation like this. He claimed that these were really exceptional circumstances and, and exceptional measures were re required at this time. So you can see that at the beginning of this period, the beginning, all the way at the beginning of the Bush administration, there was real positivity and optimism about the, the economy emerging from the Clinton period and the, the surge in the economy. There was a little bit of a recession, obviously, in 2001, but no one expected there to be a housing crisis. Alan Greenspan didn't expect it. Ben Bernanke didn't expect it. Henry Paulson didn't expect it. George Bush didn't expect it, um, as we've talked about in the Big Short uh, episode. Most of the institutions and the, the leaders in financial markets didn't expect, expect this to happen, but slowly it, it grew from the subprime market to the, the housing market and then led to the bankruptcy of, of many significant American institutions and cut away further at Bush's uh, popularity and even made it difficult for John McCain to support many of the measures that Bush was trying to put push through at the time. Thank you for that, Toby. Um, I think it was pretty clear from what we've described here and what you were just saying there, Toby, that by the, the end of Bush's term, there'd been kind of so much happening and so much of it aimed at Bush, or at least um, around the idea of what Bush represented, that by the time 2008 came around and we were looking towards, or America was looking towards who might become the next president, so much of what Obama was able to ride upon was this idea of people sort of taking back power and the, the yes, we can uh, chance that, that went around and, and followed Obama as he, as he campaigned, and whether or not there was any real ability for him to make changes or whether or not he completely faffed that upon um, taking taking charge of the, the Oval Office. Certainly, what you, it was certainly clear at the time from what I remember was 
everyone was just so tired of, of the Bush presidency and the things that had gone on and, you know, the, the wars in Iraq and, you know, spying on American residents without, you know, without uh, proper uh, proper authority and, you know, Katrina. And then as we're seeing here with the, the housing collapse and, you know, sort of bailing out big banks and then, you know, no, nobody getting charged uh, um, for for these these collapses, um, that was maybe a little bit later on, kind of once the dust settled. But um, there really was a, a a desire for something different, and that is kind of what swept Obama in, um, and what made it such an historic presidency. Beyond obviously the first African American president was just the fact that this seemed like a, a moment of, of change from what America had been experienced over these few years to the possibility of what might come and what could be different as a, as a result of replacing a Bush presidency with an Obama presidency. And obviously there was lots of things that happened in the Obama presidency, which at a, a future time we will get into, but certainly at that time at that cross, crossover, so much of, of what Obama was campaigning on was there being a difference between him and not just his style, but also his politics and, and what he believed in compared to what had just come before with the Bush presidency. And um, Bush allowed John McCain kind of to run on a different line from him. So John McCain had been, you know, someone who had clinched the Republican nomination in a time where there was a Republican president but was not part of the administration. And for the parties, the, the, the last time that actually had happened was with that Adelaide Stevenson. They afforded the McCain uh, the opportunity to criticize Bush. He made the most of it. Um, he even said on the campaign trail to Obama, you know, if you want to run against Bush, you should have run four years ago. So there was a clear line that was made between John McCain and Bush, obviously, John McCain had pushed against the Bush administration's torture policies, even going as far as going to Congress to, to do so. He had he had run against the TARP legislation, and at this time, as Vaughan has said, the the Bush administration was historically unpopular. So throughout two thousand and eight. Bush's approval rating hovered in the high 20s, <laughs> dropping to an all-time low of 26.5% in October, just before the presidential election. <laughs> According to data assembled by Pew Research Center, that was not because of the war in Iraq, but because of Bush's views on social and religious issues. This was especially with younger voters. Younger voters were more tolerant of gay rights and less uh, committed to the fundamental moral views that the Bush administration espoused uh, throughout, so he he really fell with younger voters, which is which is why you know the approval rating would go to thirty four percent to twenty six percent because the whole you know bottom end was was falling out. Um, there there were slogans at the time: Bush lied, people died, articles were printed. Echoing is the same sentiments. There, there, it really was uh, a widespread rejection of the, the the Bush presidency. So much so that Bush was nowhere to be found on the campaign trail in two thousand eight. 
Yeah, absolutely. He really was a, a, a distant figure on both sides of the political spectrum, as you say, Toby, um, for the 2008 election. Um, okay, so we have a question around George Bush's legacy. Um, before we, we get to that, um, is there anything else? I mean, we, we kind of mentioned a little bit, um, I think we might have mentioned the, the No Child Left Pined Act, which uh, Bush was able to push through in, in his first term, I believe. He had two Supreme Court picks, which we've already mentioned. And I, th- I think one of the other um, important things to mention is the the lapse in or letting the assault rifle ban um, lapse. It, I think it was, um, which we've seen a, a dramatic um, ramp up of um, gun violence as a result of this, and obviously that's been in in the news over the last few weeks um, because of you know, the terrible instances we, we've seen with, with gun violence. Um, but the, the assault rifle ban, um, which was brought in, I think, in the 90s and, and, and lapsing under George W. Bush, um, should, you know, <laughs> it's another thing that, to criticise Bush over and uh, another element of just a disaster that um, has, has been brought upon America by, by the Bush presidency. Um, okay, so... I guess as as far as legacy is concerned, we've kind of touched on a lot of <laughs> a lot of the disasters and, and, and stuff. Um, it's kind of hard to get maybe a full handle on Bush's legacy because we're still relatively close to it. Although I think we are far enough away that we've kind of got a um, you know it, it's not like Trump or something like that where it, it just happened. Um, I'd like to kind of get your thoughts, guys, just on. on the legacy of George W. Bush is it simply just the disasters and and the, the crimes and the war crimes and the the, the things that we've mentioned? Is, is that is, is there anything beyond that, or what? What, what do you think the, the legacy of the George W. W. Bush presidency? Vaughn, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think at the start of doing this this series on Bush, I had said like my main memories of Bush are his gaffes and him saying mm-hmm. strategic um, yes. things, things like that. And I definitely do. I remember those and those are the things I associate with him as a person. But I think the legacy of the Bush administration for me specifically, um, as I was a child throughout it, I, and I don't really remember the the policy decisions or anything or any of the legislative moves that seriously. I do remember No Child Left Behind and that coming into schools and everything because I went to public school um, from elementary through high school. So I remember those, but what I remember most is the, the disasters um, I remember Katrina very clearly, actually, and the efforts that we went through in my school for fundraising and for like in Kiwanis Kids, like the, the K Club, staying after school and doing certain projects or uh, to raise money to send to Katrina victims and learning about it in school, talking about it. Um, I remember my cousin was a soldier and he was missing in action for a couple months and my music teacher in elementary school I guess like 
around fifth grade um, asked if any of us have members of our families who were, were serving overseas. And I said, yes. And he started asking me about it. And then he's like, how does that make you feel? And he started getting quite political about it and really pushing me um, to talk about it. And I remember just like crying in class and I really didn't know what I was crying about, except that like my family was upset that our cousin was missing in action, which thinking retros- retrospectively, that's a really fucking serious thing that happened. Um, I remember the great recession. My family was hit very hard by the great recession and we grew up very poor, um, from it. My, my dad was laid off and, um, my mom was kind of struggling with her employment at the same time. And it was, it was a really difficult period. And, I would say a, a lot of people and my parents included haven't really recovered from it. Um, so I just, I remember so much devastation and doing all of this research and talking about all of these things with you guys has really kind of put that into perspective that that's what was, that's what was happening. That's why those things were happening in my own life personally. Um, and it has kind of filled in some gaps of my memory as a kid. But the the Bush years were rough to live through. Um, I'm in a very privileged position not living there anymore. So I can't speak to what the Trump years were like or what the Biden years are like either. But I, I do remember the Bush years being difficult and the Obama years because um, all of these things, getting back to legacy, they have lasting ramifications and ripple effects that there are people, as I said, who still aren't economically recovered from the Great Recession and definitely people in Louisiana who are not recovered from Katrina. And the government has really kind of abandoned those people. And it all started with the the horrific responses that the Bush administration had to all of these national crises. Um, So I think the lasting legacy for people on a social level is this memory that the government abandoned so many, so many people with this focus on wars abroad Um, and also just disinterest and that that Bush doesn't care about black people and all of these kind of uh, associations that we then had that we still have. And maybe they were there before. I mean, I'm confident they were there before but it was just kind of underscored and boldened by the bush administration so i think to put it more simply the legacy of bush was to denigrate the office even more the office of the presidency and rock the trust that americans have in a presidency taking care of them and being there for the people it definitely didn't start with bush there are countless instances before that rocked people's trust with the government and instances before the nsa that made people question the morals of the government for sure uh and especially around surveillance and espionage and things like that um But I think Bush just really highlighted all of those concerns and gave us even more examples of what to fear from the government, what to expect from the government, uh, what not to expect from the government. And 
in terms of Republicans, I think all of those things have been amplified even further that either you are a hardcore Republican or you're not really, you're a Republican Democrat. Um, I think if you can accept all of those things and swallow them, then people are still Republicans after Bush and even more going forward after Trump. But if you can't accept those things, if you can't accept that much distrust in your government, um, that much just abandonment from the government and the underscoring again that that there is a racial divide between where the government is going to focus their attentions and their funding. Um, if you can't accept those things, then I don't think you are a Republican. I don't think you could ever vote Republican. And that leads to all of the issues we're having right now with the divide of Republicans, Democrats who are Republicans just in blue, and then this growing cohort of leftists who are really pushing to have their own party, I think. I think we're really going to see that even more so in the next couple of years. Um, and it can all really be traced to before, but also underscored by the Bush administration. Absolutely. Um, that was a, a nice summary of some of my thoughts as well. Um, certainly the, the abandonment by the government of, of so many people and the mistrust people felt towards the government, I think, absolutely impacted. And it'd be fascinating to see how the George W. Bush presidency and how people felt abandoned by it. And as you say, Vaughn, people were kind of economically ruined uh, by that period in time. How that maybe then influenced the rise in support for someone like Trump and how people turn to, you know, QAnon and, and those types of things. I obviously have not done any research on this and I don't even know if there are papers that look into these types of things, but it'd be fascinating to find out if there was any ties between that time period and the sort of the, the later time period that came out, you know, a few years later with, with the, the rise of the Trump presidency. Um, but one thing we haven't actually really touched on too much, I think we might mention a little bit in the first episode. Uh, we did when we were uh, talking about his running mate, but obviously Dick Cheney was a, a huge figure at this time and was perhaps mm. more involved than any vice president had ever been um, as far as his role um, in, in sort of a, an active role in policy and in in how the White House was run. And, uh, you know, there were so many kind of descriptions of of Cheney being the real power behind behind Bush, and there was conversations about whether or not, you know, Cheney was actually the president, and Bush was kind of the the good old boy kind of face of that, and whether or not, and then there was kind of discussions and arguments over how much Bush was kind of aware of this, and um, yeah, it's it's maybe I don't not. think I don't think that's really true. I think the. Well, so okay, yeah. So what do you mean by that, Toby? To, I was thinking like one of the things that I said in the Clinton episode when we were doing a debrief and a, a legacy idea was that you know the people said Clinton was bipartisan and and he was like moving across based on the ways and the waves of the country to 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 create himself based on on the ways of the ways of the country. But but I think what I 
found out or, or my impression from it from doing those episodes that like Clinton was actually in control and Clinton did really did what he wanted in in many aspects. And I think again, although I'm not a scholar of this period or a researcher into this in this period, you know, we're doing this podcast, but my impression is that a lot of the decisions that were made were made by Bush. You know, that the, 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 especially at the beginning of the, the, this series, when we're dealing with Bush's uh, engagement with Iraq or with religion or with the, the Middle East, there's a concern from him that this is a religious war or a religious does it has religious elements it's 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 a bit of a it's a crusade um you know he he's he's talking to french diplomats and the french premier talking about mammon and and and, and speaking in religious terms about particular things that are happening in contemporary time and i think a lot of the the the, the boisterousness and the millenarianness of the campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, and this is talking about spreading of, of democracy and the, even the difficulties, uh, as it wasn't mentioned on this, on this podcast so much, difficulties in the back and forth between him and the heads of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs and military leaders on the ground who were seeing the devastation happening. Bush is always pushing back and saying, wait, we are, are here for the purpose of regime change. He's pushing back against Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld wants to have the U.S. government maintain some elections and then leave really quickly. Bush is pushing back against that. No, he wants re regime change. He wants he wants regime change. He's, he's he's really seeing himself, his own identity as as a bringer and a spreader of democracy into the Middle East. And then, in terms of signing statements when he's facing congress on on when it, whether it's on on torture or whether it's on his his powers as chief uh, the chief of the military he's pushing against c congressional oversight he's pushing against citizen oversight he's put he's pushing against the institutions that would have some oversight over his powers and then when he's dealing with a major disaster, a domestic major disaster like Katrina that has nothing to do with the Iraq war. His mind is on the Iraq war and his mind is on, you know, the specific policies that he's concerned with to do with surveillance that he's not thinking about Katrina. So I really see, you know, I, 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 I do understand that, that Cheney has an influence as an administrator in many ways that other vice presidents haven't. I mean, yeah, there is there is almost no analog as an mm -hmm. administrator, and in, even legislatively, when the anti-torture bills are a bit being passed through, Cheney's telling Bush that you know he 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 needs to be more assertive. He needs to find other routes and other ways. If the Supreme Court isn't helping, if if Congress isn't helping to to put put pass through his his proposals and his agenda, but I, I really do think that 
Cheney, to the extent that he's an influence, he's much more of an administrative influence as someone who can get things done, someone who probably has a better memory, better organizational sense. But the ideas of the administration in terms of where it's going, for me, is coming from Bush. But other people have a difference of opinion. Of course, they have a difference of opinion. because Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a little bit hard for us, you know, without any kind of first-hand knowledge of this, just how that relationship um, kind of worked out. Certainly, as you say, on an administrative level, uh, Bush's, Bush's cabinet was, was filled with Cheney's people. So you had Don Rumsfeld, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, John Bolton, Scatrilla B. You know, these were all Cheney's people who were all in the cabinet. And, you know, th- there were, I was just reading an article earlier today from The Guardian from 2007, I think it was, and it was basically titled, Is This the Real President of the United States? And it was... Um, you know, kind of going over, over that fact, people were questioning, you know, who the actual real president was. Now, whether or not the the reason we were in, or America was in Iraq was because, you know, Bush had a, a dream from God and decided there was a holy war or whatever, or whether or not it was Cheney wanted more oil money. You know, the, the I suppose that, that could kind of be argued either way. And there are people far more knowledgeable than us who could kind of tell us, tell us on that. But as you, as you said, Toby, there's kind of no doubt that there's, there's no analog for what Cheney was in presidential terms. You know, th- there simply was no comparison, the impact Cheney had. Now, that could be more administrative than it was. But, but I, 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 would, I would say that although the cabinet posts were staffed by Cheney's people, there was, were people like Colin Powell, for example, who set a kind of devil's advocate within the administration right and we pushed and pushed back against certain things sure and and bush let those conversations happen but he ultimately decided on what he wanted from it it's as though there is some push and pull push and pull internally but also push and pull externally from people like james baker from members of the hw bush administration who are pushing back against some of the policies from the Bush administration, but Bush is taking in this information and then he's making a decision on how the administration pursues its policies. He's being advised certainly by, by, by Cheney and obviously um, personality is, personality is an agenda and, 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 and and personnel is policy, really. I mean, I, I, I take your point, but Bush, it, I think it's clear that Bush has an emotional attachment to many of the things that happened in the Bush admi- administration. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, there is, and, and I don't think there is a secondary source of agenda setting. There, there might be a, an advice setting and, 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 and an, an institutional construction of administration that, that certainly help certain things along but but bush is always against any kind of devil's advocate that that appears within the administration that is a, that is say different from the cheney line so i think he was in step with cheney to the extent that he's not being pushed in a different direction from the direction that he was determined to go but again as you say you know this is a discussion that that's that's happening above us, you know, above podcasting, but, uh, but it's, it's certainly an interesting discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just even the fact that we have to question over who the real president was, or, or there even 
the fact there even was a discussion like that that was happening in papers like The Guardian at the time, I, I think in itself is, is telling, even if it's just from a public opinion point of view, even if, it, even if it's not from the practicalities of policy being set, I think the fact that there, there is that discussion at all, I think is, is telling off the Bush presidency on his relationship with, with Cheney. Um, anyway, let, let's let's kind of close up here. Um, Toby, uh, quickly, your thoughts on, on the, the, the Bush legacy and how much you love him. <laughs> well, you know, because, like, I did like Bush back, uh, back then, um, probably because of my, you know, like, I suppose it was like a, it, I, I saw it as a secularizing force or something like that. But when I was was young, I was sort of grown out of, of that kind of think, thinking. Um, in terms of the the legacy for the Republican Party, I think it's absolutely disastrous because um, Cheney and the people who staffed the Bush administration were very, very, um, to the extent what, what we think about their policies or whether they were invidious for the American people, they were serious people, right? All of these people were serious. Colin Powell was a very serious person. I'm sure it was a very ser- serious person. Colin Risa Lice was a very serious person. And the Republican Party was digging into its intellectual and academic um, best. You know, it was pulling out people who were serious, who had re- really strong CVs, who, who understood how to administrate governments, who were concerned with policies a- across the board, um, not only from the far right, but to the center right. Uh, you know, were politically astute and could even try to do something like No Child Left Behind, which was really an attempt to try to win some Democratic voters and try to, you know, create some bipartisanship. All of that was destroyed by the failures of the Bush administration, most viscerally the economic crisis and most graphically Katrina. Now, as Vaughan has said, People don't care about um, experts anymore. You know, they 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 feel this. They feel that experts have failed them. The economic crisis has, has shown them that experts have failed them. Now, when we have COVID, people are dismissive of expertise. As Simon has said, people have been driven towards other sources of knowledge, uh, non-empirical knowledge, and part of that is because the Bush administration basically lied you know they lied the american people into a war they they had the aesthetic of seriousness you know colin powell and all all this or you know this gravitas but just creating and um and practicing a, a lie on 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 the grandest of stages and then that leading to the deaths of so many americans and just almost a million people in the region not to talk about the displacement, not to talk about the the thing that began with the, the Shia and the Sunnis that spread throughout the Middle East to destabilize other countries and has led to untold pain in the Middle East and, and to a fracturing of the relationship between the government and people in America. I, I kind of disagree with Vaughan to an extent. I think that uh, Bill Clinton was a quite popular president. Uh, his economic policies were popular at at the time. Is being a pop- popular personality, and I think the the isolation from institutions that we see 
right now is is a direct result of the failures of the Bush administration and of the fact that Trump staffed his presidency with a lot of either second rate people or clowns or people who had no business being in the government is a legacy of the of the of the Bush administration and the hypothesisship when you see when you actually look at a, a center right governor becoming president and staffing his regime with you know on the surface level serious people and that all falling apart that it that destroyed and drained the center of American politics uh, com- completely and further po- polarized American politics and created that need for, for, for hope and change through Obama, but that was not completely uh, satisfied in the Obama ad- administration. And, and this led to a real fracturing in American, American politics. Yeah, uh, there's certainly no doubt about the, the fracture that's, that's taken place over the last um, 10, 15 years or so. Um, right, okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's probably best we finish up there. We're almost almost up to two hours now. Um, it's always a little bit difficult when you kind of sum up after a series of episodes on a president, especially one where we're sort of now at a time period where we're, we're, we have been living living through this. Um, it, if this was a film series, we'd be able to talk about all the things that we love and enjoy. It's very hard to think about things that have been enjoyable to talk about with the George <laughs> W. Bush presidency. It's more just like, oh yeah, we named that thing and all these people died and that was terrible. He had really um, cute gaffes though. Really, it's almost really cute gaffes. Yeah, I suppose we, we could finish on you know, his sort of Benny Hill type presidency of just, you know, Funny things that happen, you know. It's, yeah, um, do you remember when they threw the, the guy threw the shoe at him? Yes, oh, he's very, absolutely. Uh, very, I forgot, I forgot about that. Yes, he ducked pretty quickly as well. Yeah, that was, that was quite good. Yeah, I think if that had been Trump, he just would have been hit. So, oh, definitely. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that we need to rehabilitate George Bush's. His <laughs> paintings are really, really good. I don't know if you've seen them. <laughs> yeah, I was in a national gallery today, and I think that. Bush paintings could be in Asher Garrick, definitely. <laughs> the compositional style is uh, in keeping with, I think, the highest parts ever. He's he's he's, he's such a he's such a stylist, you know. Like his his his, his paintings are very painterly. They're very, you know. I, yeah, I, I think he's a, he's a new voice, uh, in, 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 and and he does some of the best hugs that I've ever seen on television ever. Uh, yeah, I mean, Michelle Obama actually friends with Ellen. I friends mean, with Ellen, you know. He's, he's L- cross promoting with a lot of really nice people, and I think, uh, yeah, I think you know, if he needs uh, public relations uh, help, uh, Simon and I and yeah, Vaughn uh, reluctantly is uh, no, not Vaughn. <laughs> L- little known know. fact: most of Vaughn's debt isn't actually from student loans and that kind of stuff. It's actually from paying for a very expensive dinner to have uh, to share with Ellen and George W. Bush. But it was a it was a worthwhile yes. evening. For you, wasn't it? What wasn't it? That was personal hero Ellen yeah um no I I think like I I don't think Bush would want us to rehabilitate his image like genuinely I don't think he does I don't think he's necessarily proud of any of his presidency honestly like as as we saw a month or two ago when he was speaking out on um Putin's invasion of Ukraine and he said he had that slip up talking about like the horrors of the Russian invasion 
and he slipped up and said of Iraq and then he kind of shook his head and then whispered to the mic Iraq or Iraq too it just that I like I think he's aware that he was Mm -hmm. fucking terrible as a president and nobody he didn't seek out to be a terrible president necessarily he thought he was going to do good things and there was just disaster after disaster and disastrous response to all of those disasters I think he knows that he fucked up and Mm -hmm. that the the presidency and his administration led to some fucking terrible things for a lot of Americans and still is doing so I don't think he's necessarily proud of it and I don't think he would really want us to rehabilitate his image as a president he knows he fucked up he knows there's a lot of things that he should have done differently and in the moment he didn't make those decisions and that's just something he and all of us have to live with now but like letting the assault rifle ban lapse Mm -hmm. that has had unforeseen consequences in the states and that mixed with the rise of very publicized white supremacy leading to the um, massacre in a grocery store in buffalo last month and leading to the massacre of children in schools countless times like these are direct results of his presidency that he wouldn't have known in the moment. And he made decisions that favored Republican politics at the time, sometimes didn't favor Republican politics at the time. And it's just had so many, so many unforeseen consequences that I don't, I don't think he's proud of it in a lot of ways. And I don't think he should be proud of it in a lot of ways. But yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's just mine. I, I was, I was going to I was going to uh, say, I don't know what to say. I was going to say, if you really want to set Vaughn off, just make a joke about George W. Bush having been a good painter. Apparently, that's that's. I, uh, well, that's that's a thing. Also, <laughs> like him personally, is that a lot of his paintings have been about soldiers who died in Iraq or in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Like he does his his repentance through his paintings. Mm-hmm. And he has talked about that before. I I think, I mean, we can we can do it with any president to talk about the things that could be highlights of their presidency or them as people individually. But I think Bush wouldn't want that. And I don't think he deserves it necessarily. Like the the way the Republican Party has gone since Bush and a lot of it is a result of Bush not having any consequences for being a fucking war criminal and overseeing so many crimes against humanity and war crimes in his own ranks. The fact that there have been absolutely no consequences for that alone, let alone any of the other disasters that were had or that happened under his watch, that definitely paved way for Trump to have zero consequences for fucking anything. Like, it wasn't the only cause of that, but to think that we can't prosecute a president even after he's out of office, that comes from Bush having zero consequences and being able to just walk away from the presidency with no legal ramifications. He didn't get to campaign for people in 2008 because his approval rating was too low. Oh no. Like if that's the worst thing that happened to Bush after all of these atrocities, 
plummeting millions of people into homelessness and debt and leading to starvation and medical debt and leading to um, mass shootings constantly with AR-15s. Like, I'm trying not to go on a full rant here and I'm really failing, but I just, I don't know. I don't think Bush deserves rehabilitation and I don't think he wants it. No, I, I, to, to be clear, I don't think Toby and I were advocating for that. However, um, no, no, no. I, I know, I know that you two are like personally, but I just, I don't think that we should end this podcast, this episode, this series on a positive note. Like, I, I don't think we can, in good conscience, do that. Well, I, and I think that's kind of what I was hinting at was it's, you know, if you were doing any other topic, you'd be yeah. trying to sum up your enjoyment of. I mean, even when we were doing the Ronald Reagan presidency when we were summing up that it was like oh it was still kind of interesting to learn about like his his time in hollywood yeah. or his time in the war and you can talk about all the evils of ronald reagan's presidency but at least you could at least there was like something historic i mean we kind of touched on maybe a bit more of his like his past rather than just his presidency um so maybe that was kind of different but even so um there was i suppose maybe that is just a consequence of the fact that we were talking about reagan more in general rather than just his presidency but um I, I do think it's important to focus on, on the war as, as from this perspective, because that's something that he had control over mm-hmm. as commander in chief and that he wanted. Yeah. And this is why, you know, we had this discussion regarding Cheney. I think I don't think the economic crisis was Bush's fault. And I don't which think, is kind of what Felix Salmon said when we yeah, were talking about him. I don't think Clinton laid the groundwork for a lot of. I don't think the reason that Katrina, or certainly the reason that Katrina happened, wasn't Bush's fault. They could have done more, mm-hmm. and to defer to state and local government was a bad decision. They were missing at the at the wheel, certainly, but much of what happened there was because of the the the, the hurricane itself and the. And the the the, the ensuing uh, devastation it, itself, obviously, they didn't show enough support for the people there, and, and, and there was a disaster. I don't, you know, ideologically, I have a, I'm completely different from Bush, you know, and this isn't even what? like, <laughs> this is even like Nixon, where there's a few things, you know, you can funnily jump on, like, mm-hmm. I, me and Bush don't really share anything. But I think really, as everyone, as you've said, it's the war and the devastation, mm-hmm. uh, secondary and probably tertiary, tertiary is the the assault weapons uh, issue. But yeah, it's it's really the war. I think some things, some things, the, the Bush administration was a disaster. And if if someone controlled everything that happened in the Bush administration and was at fault for everything that happened in the Bush administration, there isn't a hell that you could put them in. Even the devil would look would yeah. look at the person and be like, mm-hmm. oh my God, like I don't know if I have the right to, you know, I have a place in here that I could put you in, but but much of that stuff isn't Bush's fault. The war certainly was. And you know, and and for the, the devastation of so many families and the pain that it was wrought and the fear of so many families, you know, e- even the the leaders of the military themselves, many of them wanted to pull, pull out. Many of them did not share Bush's ambitions for democracy. 
or for a sustained intervention. Many of them weren't prepared for what was going to happen to them. They weren't prepared because Bush wasn't prepared. And I think, yeah, I think there, that stuff makes it very difficult for us to rehabilitate Bush. But but I, I would push back against everything that happened in the Bush administration, you know, being a result of of, of what Bush did or, or what Bush wanted. So um, to close up then, I, I was trying to think of the best way to kind of close up on this. As you say, Von, we weren't, we and I think most people would, wouldn't try and defend the George W. Bush presidency and, and kind of what happened. But I think what is interesting is that when we, we see the never Trumpers now and, and so much of that is basically kind of leftover um, Bush Republicans who are trying to almost rehabil- rehabilitate themselves as kind of sensible Republicans who've had the um, who've had Republicanism taken away from them. And if only we could get back to the sensible days of, you know, <laughs> the George W. Bush presidency when, you know, he had, I don't know, some basic manners about the, the way he did things. Um uh, you know that that is true that there is a way that maybe Bush communicated which was less terrible than the way Trump communicated for instance you know like you know there were certain occasions where you go okay from a PR point of view you know that was quite good you know I think he spoke up about um I think we mentioned it on on the 911 episode where you know Bush kind of went out of his way at least initially to begin with to talk about and um, not you know targeting Muslim Americans and you know that them being people who've suffered greatly too and then that counts for so little and he gets no credit for that because of what he then did in Iraq and elsewhere but um I suppose to close up the episode my my thoughts would be that although we're I don't think anyone in their right mind is trying to rehabilitate the George W Bush presidency outside of maybe the Republicans who are kind of tied to that time and uh, I think we should be careful for I think anyone should be careful about wishing that Republicans would go back to the good old days of, um, you know, the Bush presidency before we got Trump in, because you can hate Trump and still not want them to return to Bush presidency days. That's well said, Simon. Thank you. Yeah. Anytime the goblins from the Bush administration pop their head up, there's a, there's a Republican that smashed them back, (laughs) back down any war and stuff. Even, even like people like Tucker Carlson, they just roll their eyes every time someone from the Bush administration says anything. Yeah, it's just like... Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's finish up there then, and uh, we can take a break from talking about George W. Bush for a long while. That sounds good to me. Okay, from, to- <laughs> from Toby, from Vaughn, and from myself, Simon, thank you very much for listening, and we'll have another episode for you in the new future. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.